0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Wall Street Journal contributor Abigail Schreier doesn't describe herself as an activist on gender issues. But with her new book, Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters, she's become one of the most well-known voices for moderation on the subject of gender transition. It was her recent appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast, in fact, that caused some staff within that company to demand editorial oversight over Spotify content. And a few angry activists on Twitter even briefly managed to get Schreier's book thrown off the website of the large American retailer Target on the heavily contested claim that the book is transphobic. Yet for all the controversy the book has generated, Schreier's thesis doesn't seem particularly radical. Following on academic research into rapid onset gender dysphoria, or ROGD, among adolescent girls, the author urges that doctors and gender clinics take a cautious approach to medically transitioning young female patients who seek out puberty-blocking drugs and surgeries. Just this week, in fact, a British court found in favour of a young female litigant, Kyra Bell, who claimed a clinic hadn't taken adequate safeguards before transitioning her to a boy. Last week, I spoke with Abigail Schreier about her book and the oversized reaction it's generated. Here are excerpts from our conversation. So, Abigail, I'm actually quite confused about whether your book has been cancelled or whether it's selling phenomenally well or some weird mixture of both.
2: Let me just say, the book was always selling well. It sold well. People liked the book. And they recommended it to their friends. And the reason I mention that is because sometimes people say, oh, it was just market forces that took it out of Target. That's not true. It was a very, very strong seller. Certainly in the first weekend, it was number one in Amazon in several categories based on sales. So that's simply not true that it was market forces that led them to strip the book. Target stripped the book, and there was backlash because the book has a lot of grassroots support. Parents really like it. They're so desperate to get the message out of what happened to their daughters. And frankly, they don't have a lot of places that are willing to talk about it. They don't have a lot of voices to represent their experience or to tell their story. So one of the parents showed me that Target had pulled the book in response to, I think, two Twitter users who called it transphobic. That's all it took. And Target stripped it from the online store.
1: If I remember, they stripped it for what, like a day? How long was it actually off the store?
2: Maybe a whole day, maybe less.
1: But then they put it back up. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about the substance of the book in a bit. But I was just fascinated by what happened because Target is a huge multi-billion dollar retail chain. And then you look under the hood at how these decisions are made. As you said, it was like a couple of tweets and I'm trying to imagine what happened. Like someone on the social media team sent a message saying, oh, this book apparently is bad, let's take it off. But then thousands of people said, no, no, it's a good book. And then they were like, okay, we'll put it back on. Is that how decisions about books are made by major companies?
2: It's a good question. It seems like it. I mean, there was no explanation given. Usually they say, oh, this is a violation of our terms of service as shown here. But there was nothing like that in this. It was just, oh, this upset you, it's gone.
1: I don't know if you have a way of seeing this in real time, but I got the sense that throughout this little contretemps, There was a huge upsurge of interest in your book. I mean, I guess for some people, it was like the Barbra Streisand effect. Don't talk about Abigail Schreier's book. But all through my social media feeds, everybody was talking about it. Did you see an uptick in sales during that period?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, there was because most Americans really don't like book banning still. They're not okay with it across the political aisle. And they were extremely uncomfortable about being told what they are allowed to talk about and what information they're allowed to get. You know, I've had this experience many times from Spotify to other experiences. But when Men's Health ran this article attacking me for being transphobic, it made tons of people go and watch the video and complain because Men's Health wrote an article and basically said, don't look at this episode. And people wrote in to basically say, don't tell us what not to look at.
1: Men's health. What are they doing telling people not to read a book for parents who are concerned about their children? Like, it's just really weird. There are certain sources you expect, Pink News in the UK. But did it surprise you? Like Target, you know, this middle of the road retailer, Men's Health, which just usually runs vacuous articles about the 10 minute workout that'll change your body. Is there any rhyme or reason to these outlets that are coming after you?
2: To be honest, it's just sort of been nonstop. When I really started, I wrote a proposal. It was a good proposal. And I got a call right away within the first hour. My agent submitted it from a top publisher who really liked the book. He told me he had heard about this phenomenon. He knew it was going on. And he said he could tell that I was gonna give it very fair treatment. And he really wanted to do it. And I mean, this was huge for me. I was a first time author and I was so excited and we didn't hear from him. And two days later, he called my agent and said, Sorry, my staff threatened to walk out if I took this book.
1: Sometimes you hear about these so-called staff revolts, and it turns out it's like one guy, and then he sends around a letter which everyone feels compelled to sign.
2: Social media allows anyone to leverage their fury and your shame. So one person's fury on social media, if they're willing to post enough, a lot of people can see it. I mean, it gets amplified. And I think we are all held hostage to this terror of being exposed or ridiculed or shamed online.
1: Do you think you've been targeted because you're saying things that are fringe or because you're saying things that just for a lot of people are common sense? I think
2: I'm getting targeted because if anybody hears my message, it's so obviously a common sense one that the whole apparatus that pushes, you know, quick and frankly, dangerous transition for young people will fall apart.
1: How would you summarize the message in a couple of sentences?
2: My book points out that there's been a sudden and dramatic upsurge in teenage girls deciding they were transgender, pushing for hormones and surgeries and easily obtaining them, often as minors without their parents' permission in many cases, and it's not doing them any good. We know this from certain objective measures. The young women who are dropping out of school have several mental health problems and don't have a steady job or they're not building relationships, so they're not faring very well. And my book examines what went on what happened and why and it just expresses skepticism that all this sudden trans identification with their friends is doing them any good
1: has gender for some girls become a language for expressing more generalized anxiety
2: Absolutely. I mean, doctors with this population and only with regard to this thing, gender dysphoria, the severe discomfort in one's biological sex, only with regard to that, there's no differential diagnosis done. There's no doctor to say, hold on, you seem to have a lot of other problems. Let's make sure that what's driving your problem really is gender dysphoria, not your spiraling anxiety, depression and other things. The moment a young woman says, I hate my body, I know I'm trans, that's it. The discussion's over. And that's all my book explores. What are the dangers of this? And is this a good situation for young women to be in? And it expresses skepticism that it is. And look, you can disagree with that. But of course, no one wants to. Instead, they want the book to disappear.
1: And now a commercial message from virtual private network service provider NordVPN. NordVPN was born in 2012 when four childhood friends came together to build technology that could liberate the internet. Each of these founders had spent a lot of their time in different parts of the world where internet censorship, content control, and intrusive surveillance had become a growing problem. Eight years later, NordVPN serves more than 14 million people worldwide. A virtual private network gives you online privacy and anonymity by creating a private network from a public internet connection. It's not the sort of technology that I ever thought would be relevant to my own life, but governments in even free countries, like Canada, where I live, are starting to muse openly about censoring the internet, and many of us are looking for technological solutions to make sure that doesn't affect us. NordVPN provides access to more than 5,000 super-fast servers in more than 50 countries, a 30-day money-back guarantee, and even if you're not worried about online access and security at home, you can also install it on your mobile devices across a range of operating systems. So it protects you and your data while traveling in airports, coffee shops, and other locations. You get 24-7 customer support, up to six simultaneous connections, double data encryption for increased anonymity, and no data logging. Plus, you don't have to be a techie to use it. NordVPN has a simple extension for your Chrome browser, which is lightweight and user-friendly from the first click. It secures your browsing in seconds. As part of a special deal for Quillette listeners, every purchase of a two-year plan will get you four additional months free. Go to nordvpn.com slash Quillette and use our coupon code Quillette at checkout. And now, back to our podcast. There's something about this phenomenon that seems to be afflicting primarily wealthy, privileged white kids, because you don't see these kinds of numbers at less selective colleges or people who don't go to colleges at all. Is there some kind of wealth effect
2: going on? That's a really good question. Pure contagions do tend to captivate upper middle class white girls. There is a class component. It does seem like it from other pure contagions. I know that at Evergreen State College was another one that they looked at in 2019 or 2020. And- 50% of the kids had said they were LGBTQ. You know, you're definitely seeing this in colleges, educated kids, and a lot of them overwhelmingly white kids. I think they're looking for a victim shield. I mean, they are told that the worst thing to be in life is privileged, and they can't ignore that they are of the so-called racially privileged category. And of course, they're financially privileged, and that's the worst thing to be. I quote, Heather Hying is saying this in my book. It was a great observation, I thought. She said, it's the only one of the you know victims statuses you can choose. You can't choose a different race. You can't even really choose to be gay, but you can choose to be trans. That's a hundred percent up to you.
1: On the other hand, surely it's true that there are many clinics that are acting responsibly and that are pushing back and are doing due diligence. Did you speak to people who are more responsible as clinicians?
2: I did speak to therapists who were more skeptical in their approach, meaning they were very clear that they didn't automatically just agree with the patient. But it's not that no one is responsible. Of course, some of them are. It's that so many of them aren't. And in fact, they're disinclined to talk about pushing back and expressing skepticism and making sure that someone really has the correct diagnosis because they're afraid of running afoul of either the standards of affirmative care set by their professional accrediting organizations, or they're afraid of violating, you know, the conversion therapy bans. There was one woman I interviewed who was a therapist, and it was very clear by the time we were done our interview that she actually was not doing affirmative therapy, but she couldn't admit that.
1: Affirmative, of course, is code for affirming a child's self-description as being trans.
2: That's right. That's what they're told to do. That's the standard of care. They're told to agree with the patient's self-diagnosis with regard to this and affirm them. And of course, the problem with that is patients don't always know what's wrong with them. That's why we go to doctors, right? That's why we go to therapists for help. And very often we have misdiagnosed ourselves. You know, do I believe gender dysphoria exists? Of course. Do I think that people are helped by medical transition? Yes, I do. I've talked to them. The question is not whether anyone could be helped by this. The question for me was why weren't we subjecting this self diagnosis to the same evaluation, you know, and same process we would subject any other condition you came to your therapist or doctor with? Instead, it was a celebration zone, and these people were looking for help.
1: And the celebration stuff I found really off-putting, because even if you're providing effective therapy, and by the way, for a lot of kids, it ends up that transition is effective therapy. And I've had trans adults on this podcast who said that it really did help them in life. But still, the celebratory, almost party atmosphere around it seems to lean heavily on things like I am jazz."
2: I think it's more to do with activism. We have doctors who are behaving as activists. Very often in response to my book, you see on Twitter, these people coming out saying, we need to effectively you know, get more gender clinics and more expedient hormones and surgery and processes. And you just wonder why on earth they're rooting for a rigmarole of medication that will leave someone a permanent patient that has massive side effects that are really quite dangerous. It's not that you should never apply these medications, it's just that why on earth would you be celebrating and rooting for them? I mean, you want to be able to say someone ideally, you know what, you don't need the medication. I mean, in most other contexts, that's a good outcome.
1: In my interviews, I've spoken to people who say that it's actually sometimes not the child who's demanding these aggressive treatments. Often, oddly, it's the parents who become very deeply vested in the trans narrative because if you have a kid, and I can't imagine how difficult it would be, if you have a kid who has OCD, who has depression, maybe who has some kind of autism, they're on the spectrum somewhere, they have all these issues, and you've got somebody saying, hey, I have a single solution for all of this, that is really seductive. Uh, have you encountered situations in your research where it was the parents who were the biggest cheerleaders for this?
2: Yes, but I will say this, it depends on the age of the child. So I really look at the ROGD population and these are young women who are in their teenage years. They're not really listening to mom anymore. They're much more open to social influences of the internet and their friends, because that's what happens when they hit their teenage years, right? They're much more concerned with what their friends think or what their peer group thinks and much less concerned with what mom has to say. But for the younger kids, I haven't interviewed parents who are aggressively transitioning their kid to satisfy, you know, some sort of Munchausen's by proxy or something like that. I will say that I've interviewed parents who, let's say, were overly aware of the diagnosis and very, very quick to diagnose. They sort of knew all about gender dysphoria from various Hollywood sources, and they immediately leapt to, oh my God, I have a trans kid, and now I know what I'm supposed to do next. If
1: you're a parent who was told, and you believe in good faith, that affirm, affirm, affirm means you're saving your kid's life, and by putting this on social media, you might be saving another kid's life. If you're a parent who's new to this issue, and people in white lab coats are telling you this, I can see why you do it. And for a lot of people, they're doing it in good faith, and I guess reading your book is an antidote to that. Is that why people have tried to shut down your book?
2: I think so. I mean... I certainly don't say that no one is trans or that no children are or any of this or no children have genuine gender dysphoria or anything like that. All I say is if there's a peer contagion going on and this looks like peer contagion, be aware that there could be peer influence at play and social media influence at play. So don't immediately push for transition, apply some skepticism and see what's really going on because you know, transition is not easy. And one of the things I do explore in the book are all the risks and dangers of transition. That's not to say that no one benefits from it, but we live in this bizarre society where if you take an aspirin, you are told about every risk, no matter how remote. But when it comes to this one series of hormones, no one talks about the risks. And that's a really strange and frankly dangerous place to be.
1: And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling non-fiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 non-fiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard. Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. You wrote about how it's not even like you're this lifelong activist when it comes to gender, and that you're going to move on and write about other stuff. Does the huge backlash that you've received ironically make you maybe more likely to return to this subject because it suggests that you've actually hit on something that needs writing about?
2: No, I'm really not an activist of any kind. I mean, I do like to look at things that I think are obviously true that nobody wants to talk about, which for me, I take to be really the job of journalists. You know, I always am interested in things that people assume to be one way, but actually may reveal themselves to be something else or more complex or You know, and I'm very interested in this generation. I think Gen Z is really interesting. They're very important generation because they're large and they're in a lot of pain. And they're really different from the generations that have come before. They've really grown up online. And of course, you know, we know them from their radical politics. They are the ones leading the riots on our streets. And, you know, in many cases, you had these girls arrested who came from very affluent families and they were cheering on looting of stores. So I find this whole generation very, very interesting. So I would like to take another look at them, but I don't think I'll return to this topic.
1: Abigail Schreier is the author of Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters. You can read more of her work in the Wall Street Journal, where she is a regular contributor. Thanks so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you'll find more content.